at the end of the day, uh, it's really much about the volatility of inflation going forward and the level of inflation. So if we continue to be in this elevated inflation environment for much longer, I think the rates volatility that we see, you know, is going to persist. But at some point, if that's the case, then indeed the expectation of the market that we're going to get rate cuts between 1% or 2% over the course of the next 12 months cannot play out. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. Welcome or welcome back to another conversation in our series of episodes that focuses on markets and investing from a global macro perspective. This is a series that I not only find incredibly interesting as well as intellectually challenging, but also very important given where we are in the global economy and geopolitical cycle. We want to dig deep into the minds of some of the most prominent experts to help us better understand what this new global macro-driven world may look like, and we want to explore their perspectives on a host of game-changing issues and hopefully dig out nuances in their work through meaningful conversations. So please enjoy today's episode, hosted by Harry Krishnan. Thanks very much for the introduction, Niels. My guest today is Mika Kastenholz, a cross-ad asset derivatives trader. Until recently, Mika was a managing director and global head of structured macro at Credit Suisse in Hong Kong. Uh, notably, he's the author of Trading Derivatives, The Theoretical Minimum, which I think is a great title. And he holds a PhD in computational biophysics from the ETH in Zurich. Uh, it's a pleasure having you on the show, Mika. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah, um, maybe we can start with just a little bit about your background. Uh, I tend to do it in reverse chronological order, but it's totally up to you. Right. Yeah, thank you very much again for the invitation. It's a pleasure. Um, we have a, I think, very short window of opportunity where I'm still maybe a bit more free to to speak my mind without getting pre-clearance um, from, let's say, internal entities of where I work. Um, so I'm going to start maybe still in the beginning, because as you mentioned before, um, I don't have a background in finance or economics. Uh, I did a PhD in computational biophysics, which kind of means that I know probably a bit about math and, um, you know, computers. Actually, always had a good relationship with computers, which, you know, has turned out to be quite a valuable asset uh, during my career. And I still like to tinker around with data and do some analysis here and there. Um, after my PhD, I wasn't really, you know, too sure of whether I wanted to stay, you know, in the, let's say, academic uh, realm. And it so happened that at the time, so this is probably 2004 or so, a good friend of mine 
uh, worked as a quant at a hedge fund. And he told me that, look, before you go down the academic route, why don't you interview with a couple of banks, insurance companies to see whether, you know, there might be something interesting for you to do in terms of crunching numbers. And so I ended up uh, joining Credit Suisse in, I believe, 2005 or four. Uh, initially in structuring, equity derivative structuring, or equity exotic structuring, and then moved on to trading, I believe, in 2007 in London. So this was kind of right at the onset of, you know, the 2008 great financial crisis, which, uh, to be honest with you, I was in equity exotics at the time. It was clearly a formative year, I think, in my experience as a trader, because you kind of were sometimes a guest to experience, you know, the kinds of volatility that, you know, happens maybe, you know, once every 20 years back in those days, right? Um, so, so that was a formative experience. And I mean, if you experience things like gap risk and drying up liquidity firsthand, instead of just reading it in a book, that's clearly a different experience. And clearly it also kind of, you know, determined how I look at risk going forward, right? So I started in equity derivatives, later hybrids, and also corporate derivatives. Left Credit Suisse in 2012 to co-found a fintech. At the time, you know, it was a good opportunity to raise funds and maybe move more towards uh, the product side of things, also because our industry uh, was probably a bit in decline at the time, uh, following GFC in 2008, right? And we are probably going to talk about the changes that, you know, GFC did to our industry in terms of regulatory impact and whatnot a bit later. And I was kind of doing, you know, we were doing things in the domain of wealth management, developing tools for relationship managers, but also for partially algorithmic trading or CTA type of uh, wealth management approaches. Um, but honestly, you know, by 2019, I, I kind of missed trading. Um, it's a fantastic job in the sense that you have immediate feedback on or almost immediate feedback on your decisions, maybe not on a day-to-day -day basis, depending on the type of business you run. But clearly, um, you know, that's that's quite unique, I think, in our, in our jobs. So I rejoined Credit Suisse in 2020, this time in rates, uh, initially for local rates in Hong Kong. And then later, I was given the mandate to run what we call structured macro globally at Credit Suisse, so that structured rates and hybrids effectively. Was your first tenure at uh, Credit Suisse also in Hong Kong? No, that was, was in, in London. Europe? London and was Zurich. in London. Yeah, correct. So what induced you to go to Hong Kong then? Well, on the one hand, I'd never worked in Asia before. Um, and clearly, and still I feel that way, right? To be in Hong Kong specifically, it's, it's a great place in terms of what is going to be playing out between and on the geopolitical side between between the US and China, right? It's also a very exciting place to work. Um, it's very entrepreneurial there. And, you know, those were, you know, my key motivations to go there. What, of course, you know, went wrong a bit is COVID, right? Which is something that, you know, none of us really uh, foresaw uh, playing out the way it did. So that put a lot of challenges on that. But otherwise, it's it's been a great experience. And then, indeed, until very recently, which is April 2023, I, I was taking this global role for structured macro, and well, I will soon be uh, joining another firm, uh, more on the asset management investment side of things. Great. I mean, I can say that there are some at least vague parallels between the two of us, because 
I had no formal training in economics either. And for me, it was basically, I didn't know what people were talking about when I started. So every day I'd go home, I was single back then, and at least read up what it was that they had said and try and piece it together. And I found it was a very useful useful way to build my own framework for understanding things. So um, I presume there are some parallels there. Yeah, look, I think maybe if you enter our industry uh, as a, with a quantitative background, you're naturally drawn to kind of maybe the more quanti stuff, right? Even if you work in trading or structuring, right? And until you experience a situation maybe where you cannot necessarily derive the future of the economic cycle by just looking at price and maybe, you know, volume data or implied volatility, you kind of deep start to think that maybe there's something else I need to catch up on, right? In my case, that was clearly an understanding of how economic cycles work, right? Which until then, you know, I'd, you know, obviously never studied at university, right? So that was kind of my, my way into then also thinking more in terms of global macro and how sort of the whole interaction between, let's say, central banks and the underlying economies play out. Perfect. Now, when you were in Zurich originally, I presume that you, like many of us, were, were at least exposed to econophysics, which I think was started in the 1990s and then was going strong well into the early 2000s. Did you do any work in that area? And what, if any, were your findings? Yeah, so during my PhD, not, right? Um, however, so this, this was kind of in between co-founding the fintech and leaving Credit Suisse for the first time. I did a short stint uh, with DDS Sonnet at ETH um, as, I guess, a research assistant to some extent. Um, and of course, DDA is not only, but predominantly in finance, known for the LPPL or log periodic power law type of models that try or aim to predict uh, market crashes, right? Um, so I worked a bit with Didier on, on the model um, because at the time he wanted to have a bit input of maybe somebody who came from more trading background, um, which was quite interesting. And it's certainly a very interesting model. And, you know, sometimes it works and, you know, a lot of times it doesn't really work, right? Um, so, <laughs> so um, but it was an interesting experience and Didier is obviously a brilliant mind on its own. So... So I, I enjoyed that, that stint before co-founding uh, the fintech. Absolutely. I mean, crisis prediction is almost the holy grail. If you could do that, then you could run masses of risk most of the time and then wait for the LPPL signal to flash and then you'd be golden. But um, I guess it's a very, very hard problem to solve. And probably given your experience in 2008, you're well aware of the risks that can emerge even from a low volatility backdrop. I know 2020 was like that too. So um, um, that much is clear. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, crisis or crash prediction is in a way a subset of market timing, right? And market timing is inherently difficult. What is much easier is to get your position sizing to a level of risk that you're comfortable with, right? So instead of maybe pinpointing the correct you know, moment to enter and exit, try to develop something that is, sizes your positions accordingly to your, you know, you know, perception of risk and your risk capacity. I think that's a much better way for most people to approach the problem than trying to find a particular holy grail formula that's going to give you the answer. 
Yeah, that's very well said. Um, what's your view on just naive sizing where you say scale positions according to one over the historical volatility or some expectation of vol? Um, honestly, I'm not a big fan because it can lead to issues where, you know, your position size might still be very large because vol is is very low, right? I mean, we are right now in this interesting period where if you look, compare fixed income markets to equity markets, there's a clear um, discretion uh, disparity between how fixed income market prices vol if you look at simple metrics such as the move and then in the equity space, if you look at the VIX. I'm not saying these two indicators should trade at a certain ratio to each other, right? Because they're quite differently defined and they look at you know, different things in the sort of option space domain in terms of implied volatility. But there's clearly a disconnect as we speak, right? So either the fixed income market is completely paranoid or the equity you know, equity market is too complacent about a potential further, you know, slowdown in the economy and et cetera. So, um, yeah. So if I saw something like that where the move was high and the VIX was, to, to use a simple proxy, was low, is is your thinking, putting your macro hat on, I should be a seller of rate, rates vol and a buyer of equity vol, or is that far too dangerous given the spread risk? Well, it depends on the positions you're running first, right? I mean, if you start with, you know, an empty book, I think nobody's going to criticize you for, for taking that type of spread risk, right? I mean, my personal view on macro right now is the following, right? I think there's kind of three approaches you can take in the current framework where, let's be honest, a lot of us has been quite surprised how this particular year, 2023, has played out so far, right? And even if we understand that in the equity space, for example, a lot of the performance is in the mega cup space and semiconductor space, it's still quite astonishing how resilient, you know, or range bound the market has been between, let's say, 3,800 and 4,200 in the S&P space, right? Uh, that's fairly clear. So the first approach you can take is sort of your tra traditional or neoclassical view of how market cycles play out, right? That is to say... Okay, first, you know, the central banks tightens, then maybe between six and 12 months leading indicators peak, earnings decline or compress, margins compress, employment declines, and then suddenly we hit a recession and inflation subsides, and then we can actually cut rates again, right? And maybe in this particular classical cycle, we are somewhere in between earnings compressing, maybe not as much as people have feared, but still, and it just doesn't still yet trickle down to the employment numbers, right, as we would expect. And the way to square that circle is then to basically say, well, there are just delays this time, possibly because we have put so much money into the system that the savings are still kind of, you know, carrying the economy through it, right? That's sort of the classical way of looking at it. Now, the other view you can take um, is to say that, well, um, things have you know, changed quite a lot following 2008, which means that it's more about liquidity or flow of funds, right? Sort of the argument that Michael Howell puts forward, right? So not necessarily, so taking a broad liquidity metric, which is not something as simple as M2, for example, but a much broader way of looking at, for example, how collateral is used to, to actually fund and roll the debt in our, you know, cycle in our, in our uh, global economy. 
that's one way of looking at it. And if you do that and construct indicators in this, you know, with this type of mindset, then you can indeed make an argument that maybe we've already kind of bottomed in terms of the liquidity compression that we have had over the last six to 12 months, right? Which means that we might be in a, in a more, in a better place in terms of also equity returns going forward, right? Now, I, I have a few questions there because I agree with everything you said, broadly speaking, but if liquidity is abundant, why are certain commodities so depressed? Uh, that's point number one. And point number two is why is the yield curve so persistently inverted? Because I presume that in all of these collateralized or in many of these collateralized um, trades um, or structures, uh, the most liquid asset available, which may be the US 10-year note, is posted as collateral, which suggests that um, if the yield curve is severely inverted, there's an excess bid for the liquid asset which is suggestive of maybe not great liquidity in the market. I mean, how, how do you square the circle? Yeah, it's a very nice good question. Um, but I think that's, that's part of the argument to some extent, right? I mean, we've gone through a period of austerity, especially in Europe, right, um, until the COVID episode. And there are actually collateral shortages in the market. And one of the indications, as you point out, are inverted yield curves but also negative term premium, in particular in the US, right? So people are bidding that collateral. Um, also, obviously, banks who need it for HQLA purposes and whatnot, right? You know, th that's kind of the, the way, so that's the first, the second part of your question, right? Um, in terms of commodities, um, well, that clearly points more towards the first model of looking at the economy, which they say that, well, actually that slowdown is happening, right? In particular, if you look at, you know, data in China, even if you might not fully believe all the PMI numbers that come out of China, but they have been maybe a bit weaker than people would have expected, right? So clearly, um, the China engine is not yet starting as we would have hoped, right? And that clearly, you know, fuels a big of the commodity demand globally, right? So that is maybe an answer to your first part of the question why you don't see that on the commodity space because we might still be in that first model where it's it's more led by your traditional neoclassical way of looking at the business cycle. Yeah, this is a this is an excellent point that you're raising because I I historically thought of the problem a bit like this. Um, first rates move and FX perhaps, then equities, then real assets, and then the cycle turns upside down. So half a cycle is bonds up, equities up, real assets up, and then the cycle flips. Um, but that seems to be broken, as you pointed out, post-2008. And you can even see that statistically if you look at trend measures. So if you say, what's the probability of a sequential move where of, of the type I described? Historically, it was quite high. And now it seems to be broken or severely extended. How does one deal with that when thinking across asset classes in terms of trading? That's a very broad question, so please answer it how you see fit. I mean, if you ask me personally, I'm probably more within the you know, first camp, as in we are still in a fairly conventional business cycle episode. But as we know also from the past, there can be significant lags between 
the eventual, you know, points in the cycle where you effectively get that hit on unemployment, right? So I'm probably more inclined to, you know, this, the first model, but I think you need to respect um, Michael Howell's work because clearly the observation that we moved from sort of an unsecured funding environment pre-2008 to an environment where you need collateral to roll that debt that we have obviously created all over the place in order to cope with the aftermath, right? In order to cope, the, in order to keep the, the system intact. So for me, being more in that first camp, right? Clearly, if you need to be, you know, in equities right now, uh, you know, don't be in cyclical equities. That's that's fairly obvious, right? And at these low volatility levels, it's probably an opportunity to rather load up on Vega than to sell it, right? Do, do you think the post-2008 um, regulatory changes impacted banks very negatively in a number of ways? One way, which is, as, as we discussed, if the yield curve is inverted, that takes away the basic banking model to some degree. And secondly, the increased funding requirements probably make banks more reluctant to take on and warehouse trades and also to offer the same range of structures that they may have previously because they have to think about whether the new customer demand actually lowers the risk they already have on their books. Um, do you think this is really a negative structural tr trend for banks or is it... Um, do banks always find a way, so to speak? What is challenging with respect to investing in bank equities, right? I think th there's two there's two issues the way I see it. The first one is that the introduction of risk-weighted assets, right, and kind of gauging your ca capital requirements of that is obviously... A, let's say, a setup that might still lead to a case where banks are not capitalized enough. And maybe some more savvy investors actually know that, depending, of course, what type of bank you run, you run right? Whether it's a you know, globally diversified play or just a custodian, or right, that, that depends. But a bank that takes substantial amount of risk and has teams that optimize RWA usage calculation, et cetera, Maybe I'm not going to say there's some arbitrage in that, but possibly, um, you know, banks still have quite a lot of leeway to to work around the system. And so that's, I think, one issue. The other issue is, I think, more structurally in the sense that for banks for a long time, it's hard to see a significant growth model, right, in terms of a strategy for growth, right? Other than saying, okay, I will go to where people need my services more in the future, which might be Asia, for example, right, or Africa. But that's more a plan and not a strategy, in my view, right? Yeah, I mean, um, people occasionally ask me, well, why are these autocallable structures offering massive yields? You know, so people, various banks offer term sheets to high net worth individuals and so on. And is it fair to say that these sorts of structures are being peddled by banks, even though they seem to have remarkably high yields, because they help the banks offset risks in the rest of their books? In other words, there's kind of a short vol profile if you're a buyer of such a 
structure, at least you're sure to deep out of the money put on some bespoke basket of names. Is that the reason for a lot of these things coming to the market that superficially seem so attractive, but may fill a risk hole in bank balance sheets? Okay, so there's a couple things to unpack here. I think in general, you're right that um, structured notes issuance, whether that be on the equity side or things, the income side of things, is a source of funding that can be valuable to banks. I think that's your question, right? In terms of sourcing cash and capital, right? I think that's a fair point. What I disagree with is that the auto-callable structure or the trigger-redeemable structure is a trivial structure to hedge and replicate. Now, any kind of worst or forward type of structure is very tricky to manage, right? Especially with respect to your Vega profile and whatnot. As you also know, there have been many small and bigger, you know, accidents um, within the autocallable space. So probably as a source of funding, unless you do something very short dated, but then, you know, it doesn't help you so much in terms of, you know, stable funding, probably autocallable is the, is the wrong way to go about um, funding. I think you should also also need to distinguish a bit in terms of the investor type, right? The, let's say, structured node equity investor, it's more of a beta play. Right? Maybe you pick a couple of stocks where you believe that there's a bit of alpha, and they'll hang in there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, on the fixed income side, it's more like a fixed income structures note side. It's more a bond replacement type of strategy, right? Where you maybe take a bit of risk on top in terms of an exotic uh, component in in that particular uh, note and get a yield enhancement on top of what you would have um, for. Um, a let's say conventional corporate bond yield, right? So I think there are two different investor types. Yeah, I just want to make sure that that the listeners understand, and I guess most of them do, that the autocallable structure is um, is not easy to hedge. Also, what people forget is that there is a significant amount of computational expense as well, right? Um, because it's a path-dependent structure, typically with a daily observation, multiple underlyings. Um, so you need to obviously calculate your PVs and your Greeks, uh, not only overnight, but intraday. And you need to run various stress tests. And I'm not sure whether we're going to go into, you know, the XVA topics and potentially FRTB. But even if you move your computation to the cloud, um, your fully loaded cost um, in a market that where margins are obviously also compressing over time. Because, I mean, imagine right, when we kind of started in the early 2000s, not everybody could price everything. Today, right, if the two of us wanted to, you know, establish a broker dealer with respect to trading exotics and even taking some risk on our books, we can probably start, you know, in two months and be operational by just buying a third-party system, right? And it doesn't even need to be a spreadsheet. It can be like a proper system. Uh, but still, there is a computational expense to this. Um, and I'm not even talking about support functions, which is obviously market risk, product control, and whatnot, right? So it's, you know, I think you, you need to really look at the fully loaded cost of this type of business in relation to the risk whether to see whether that actually makes sense for you or not. Uh, is, uh, on a slightly tangential note, is it fair to say that the attractiveness of these high coupon paying instruments, whether in the rate side or in the equity side, is lower now with T-bills at 5%? It should be. Is that? <laughs> it should be, right? Is it? But is it? I, I'm, I'm not in that market, so I don't know what the attractiveness is for a 10% yielding autocallable structure or a yield pickup 
structure in in Ratesland or something like that? Well, I guess it depends how you look at the autocallable, right? If you look at it as a kind of market neutral type of instrument or play without any directional component, and if you believe the market is just going to hover in this range bound area where we are, yeah, um, you know, maybe that's a safe play to do, right? Depending also a bit on the maturity of that structure. Right? Or, or if you believe that, well, you know, directionally the market is going to go further up, then you know that thing is going to knock out. You get paid your coupon and you can move on and reinvest. Right. So I think there's a directional component in it that um, we probably don't have that much in, let's say, structured rates, right? Uh, which is more a bond replacement type of strategy instead of a beta or directional play. Which is somewhat similar to the. Um thought process behind convertible bond arbitrage, assuming that you buy a convert with a, where you think the bond floor is hard, you're basically getting a reasonable coupon and you also participate on the upside. Now, I think I'm, you mentioned convertible bond arbitrage in your book. Is that something you've done a lot of? Do you, have you followed it over the various cycles? In the late 90s, I think it was hugely successful and profitable for hedge funds. And then it had a hiccup in 2002, and every four to six years it has a hiccup. Is 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 that an area that you're um, involved in, and do you have a current perspective on it? Uh, not anymore, to be honest uh, with you. Um, convertible bond, um, and we need to distinguish, right? I mean, I guess there's two forms of arbitrage. One, indeed, you know, the, the one you hint at, which is you kind of try to identify some hidden asset in the corporate bond that is maybe mispriced. Uh, but to that point, and I think this is something that you also allude at in your in your second book, uh, in these type of plays, it's very important to understand who owns that convertible bond, right? Because it might just be that there is one, you know, a large player in, in this network of market participants that owns 80% of the issuance, and that's why the price is not moving, right? Because they're not selling, right? So then this mispricing or potential mispricing that you see maybe on the volatility component of the of the convertible is actually just an artifact. And then there's, of course, also prospectus arbitrage, right? Where you have somebody going through the 50 or 100 pages of paper trying to find some hidden clause or some hidden optionality, um, which is why you might want to own that corporate, that uh, convertible or not, right? I think these are the type of uh, plays you you can you can do there. Yeah, yeah. On the buy side, I maybe my knowledge is not as deep as it could be, but I would have thought the prospectus arbitrage is not a major component of convertible bond arbitrage because you're paying through the spreads. You you have less. You need to take more of a broad stroke view. Uh, about things, but I presume on your side, which is partly flow-driven as well, or if not largely flow-driven, you can focus on perhaps more minute mispricing. Yeah, I think that's, that's that a, a fair, fair comment, right? Fair um, comment. Having said that, I mean, converts, it's um, clearly a very complicated instrument, right? Uh, hybrid instruments by construction. So you need to pay a lot of attention to, to respective details um, in the pricing and the potential arbitrage that you might be spotting or not. Now, speaking of complexity, looking through your book again, you have a section on swing options, let's say in the energy space. I cannot imagine a more complex balance sheet intensive structure than, say, a, an option that gives the buyer 
of the option, flexibility as to how much natural gas they're going to take within a threshold and when they're going to take it. I mean, is that the sort of stuff that banks still do, or is it uh, just so so much of a balance sheet drain that it's a recent relic of the past? Oh, I would say in general, right? Anything that is you know heavy on the balance sheet is is something that only very large players can still do, right? Um, and in this particular example, um, for sure, that's you know it's something also from the past, right? We have clearly moved um, over the last 15 years or so following GFC into you know, a world where capital is very precious uh, and a constraint, um, even for the larger players. So the capital hurdles that you need to overcome or you know, maybe expressed more in XVA terms, the KVA that you need to uh, kind of monitor a price in over the lifetime of a transaction is, is so punitive that uh, these type of plays uh, or levered plays um, is is a relic of the past, as you correctly point out. Are these trades still done by non-bank entities then? I, I wouldn't know, to be honest with you. Um, but the question is, I mean, you need to have both sides right on that trade, right? Um, so uh, I'm not sure whether whether anybody would still be you know, keen to put on this type of leverage, right? So if I had access to the data for common structures that have gone through the markets for years, say interest rate swaps or swaptions and things like that, would I see wider bid-off spreads or is it simply a matter that the depth of the market would, has gone down? Yeah, post I would say 2008. the depth of the market has clearly gone down, right? And liquidity profile and even for for things like, you know, index options, right? As you probably know yourself, right? And you know, that's clearly to some extent an outcome of the regulatory framework, which is more punitive for banks in that space, right? It's more difficult to warehouse risk, right? And um, it's more in the hands of, I would say, you know, market makers who are obviously more keen on entering and exiting the respective positions as fast as possible, right? Because running large overnight positions is, is not something that is in your business model, right? Um, so in that sense, um, clearly the liquidity profile of the market has has gotten weaker, and that's cross asset. Do you see things statistically as well where markets tend to close at or near their highs or lows more often than they used to? Let's say particularly on a Friday or preceding a holiday, or is that um... uh, honestly I haven't seen that too much, um, or I haven't done that analysis myself um, in that sense. I mean, also. I guess if you work on the more linear side of things, um, our books tend to be rather slow, or the positioning of our books tend to be, you know, I'm using the wrong expression here, but it's not it's not really day trading per se, right? Um, where these type of seasonal effects are important to us, I would say. But um, um, if you have seen that yourself or measured that yourself, I, I'm inclined to believe you. I can't say for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I won't comment on that. Maybe yes, maybe no. Yeah, well, I had mentioned that you had mentioned that banks are more reluctant to take on risk. How does cross-margining work nowadays? Let's say that you, how should I put it? Maybe you're trading in two different markets. You're trading futures against cash in some market, and they trade either on different exchanges or one is listed and requires uh official posting of margin and the other one isn't. I mean, is that something that you have to deal with in 
risk land nowadays, um, given given the changes in in regulations? Yes or no, right? Um, part of that discussion, right, is is to some extent taken care of um, by people who work more, let's say, in the XVA space, right, which is, which is often more segregated, right, compared to the let's say primary business that that we run on the desk. Um, but for sure, I mean, CVA pricing or initial margin pricing, which maybe is what you're alluding to, um, in, right, is, is something that, you know, clearly uh, tier one banks, maybe even tier two banks need to price in, right, for sure. And uh, that you, that is, but it's part of the mechanics already, right? It's, it's almost a default, yeah, I mean, I'm being on the outside here. If a big customer trade goes through or a big deal is going through the market um, and it, uh, your bank is thinking about taking the deal, does is there an XVA desk that preempts everything or does it go straight to a trading desk? Is, is, in other words, is, is the um, funding desk overseeing and controlling everything that goes through? Or is it more on a trading desk by trading desk basis? Yeah, so I think it's a joint effort, right? So if there is a larger client trade, or it could even be something small on the OTC side, right? Like, I don't know, a cross-currency swap or whatnot. Then for sure, the mechanics is such that the trading desk would price up the trade. And then uh, either immediately because we have access to the models that you know spit out the respective XVA charges, whether that's CVA, of course also FVA in case we're talking about a non-collateralized transaction, which is obviously nowadays you know, rare, right? Uh, but if you deal with corporate clients, that can still be the case, obviously, right? Or if you, if you deal with a um, government entity or quasi-sovereign entity, right, that can still be the case. And then on the KVA side, which is a bit more, I guess, subjective or bespoke, um, because I mean, if you want to do KVA or sort of try to estimate the capital requirement for a particular trade over the lifetime, you implicitly also would need to make assumptions about changes in the regulatory environment, right, going forward, which is challenging, plus your own funding conditions point in time or forward funding conditions point in time. And that's obviously very challenging. So typically there, uh, it's more things like capital hurdles that you would look at, right? Which is something obviously we've done all the time trading, right? Even uh, pre-2008, right? In order to assess whether a particular trade actually uh, is profitable with respect to return or risk-adjusted return on capital. Pardon me. Are the regulators a bit like central banks where people are trying to hear their communications and infer what their future course of action is likely to be? I mean, you mentioned this idea that KVA, you don't know what the regulations will be in five years, what the funding requirements will be in the future. So if there's a long-dated bilateral agreement, how can you forecast the capital requirements not knowing what the regulatory regime will be in the not-too-near future? Yeah, that's a fair question. I mean, what you can do is obviously assume that it's you know might be a bit more punitive and maybe you know, punitive by, you know, a certain percentage on, for example, your tier one capital going forward, right? Having said that, um, another thing that has obviously changed over the past 15 years is that we don't have so many long-dated trades anymore on the books for exactly those reasons, right? Um, and that 
kind of, you know, obviously makes the problem a bit easier along those lines. I think I just mentioned KVA because it's probably the XVA adjustment that is most discretionary and where maybe the industry is not 100% aligned, even in the tier one space, how you look at that. So what's to prevent one bank from being far more aggressive and taking all of these uh, deals on their books and at least in the short term doing more business than a more conservative bank? Sure. Look, I I think it, it boils down to the type of risk limits, right, and, and culture that you have within your within your bank, right? Um, I mean, the word culture obviously is being thrown around quite a lot recently, all the time, and we all understand it's kind of an umbrella term for for many things, from you know prudent risk management to alignment of interest um, to having you know, clear accountability and responsibility on your respective business line and uh, how that can affect the whole bank uh, going forward. Um, but here, I think, I think we have reached a stage where probably in the next phase we need to make sure that we can quantify that, right? What we actually mean by culture, because otherwise we are kind of stuck in this. We're almost making it an HR problem in the sense that okay, please don't hire bad people or don't take stupid risk, and that has a very subjective element to it. Plus, people might change, right? You might get the nicest graduate, and once he gets paid or she gets paid a bit more money. You know, they change, right? So I think we need to express culture more quantitatively, but it's just tricky, right? I mean, coming back to capital hurdles, right? If you think about it, if you if you are the CEO or part of the executive board for a large diversified, you know, global bank, then one of your, I guess, key responsibilities is to make sure that capital and resources is allocated to businesses that have the best risk-adjusted return in the future, right? But getting that right cross-asset, cross-region with also different regulatory environments is not trivial, right? So how, how do you compare, let's say, a financing business, which is effectively akin to writing puts, so that's great until it doesn't, right? to a market-making business or to, let's say, a structured notes business? Right, in terms of risk-adjusted return in the future. It's very tricky. But I think that's where people need to spend the brain power on in order to get that right. And if you get that right, then I think you put a framework, a quantitative framework around what we currently call culture. Uh, there's a lot in that comment, a lot, a lot of great stuff. Um, it seems to me, uh, maybe, again, I'm speaking as an outsider, that banks seem perhaps overly focused on short-term dynamic management of risk and not focused enough perhaps on generating long optionality in their business lines. Is that a fair comment? And if so, do you have any suggestions as to what lines of business actually do increase um, the positive convexity of payouts within the overall business? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, to be fair, I've never thought about it uh, about it this way of trying to build portfolios and businesses that have, I guess, as Nassim Taleb would call it, anti-fragile properties, right? Or positive convexity. One of the problems with that as well is that, I mean, think of a, a large derivatives book in a, let's say, structured notes business, for example. Um, of course, your dream scenario is that you would have 
20 different trade types with offsetting risks that you can trade every day in order to keep sort of the second and third order and nth order risk on the book flat. But in reality, it's not, especially in the retail space, right? It's not that, you know, investors want to do 20 things. They typically want to do one or two things. In the equity derivative space, for example, that's, as you put out correctly before, it's worse off down an input of type of structures typically, right? So how do you recycle that? Can Can you build a portfolio out of that flow business that has positive convexity or, you know, great properties in a severe market crash? No, you can't, right? The only thing you can do is you can limit the positions, right? So I think this this dream of building positive convexity in your portfolio, similar to what you might do in asset management or in a hedge fund, ideally, right? I think that's very challenging simply because the market flows typically don't allow you to do so, right? And perhaps you're too big to do it as well. I mean, you can't just go out and buy a bunch of teeny options in some market that you think, where you think vol is cheap and warehouse and just stick it in the cupboard while you continue doing the rest of your business. Yeah, correct. Yeah. But for sure, I mean, if you run a business where you know that in your stress scenarios, you can drop a couple of bucks or millions, right? You will certainly run this with a, you know, big or skew bias, right? Typically, right? Um, as, a, as, a, as a hedge overlay all the time. Maybe you even have some, you know, macro hedges on top of it, right? Just to, just because you cannot hedge out those flows all the time. Indeed. I, that kind of brings me to a complex systems question, and I know you're going to have lots to say. But how about if I set up an idealized scenario where every bank had exactly the same risk limits, same means of, of or the same basic recipe for modifying positions or reducing risk over time, and traded in largely the same markets? Wouldn't there be a crash that would be imminent because everyone, everyone would be delevering or reducing risk at the same time. Isn't there a risk that if these things become too standardized, it actually increases the fragility in the financial system? Yeah, I mean, I guess in the asset management space, similar arguments have been put forward with respect to ETFs, right? Or passive investments in general, right? It is true. At the same time, so I can I can follow the argument, let's put it this way. And for sure, as you know, market liquidity has you know decreased given you know, some of the regulatory impacts and the fact that we cannot warehouse as much risk anymore in certain market making operations, for example, right? Given, for example, balance sheet constraints. Um, indeed, if everybody's selling at the same time and there's no counterparty willing to pick up, you know, the flow, then that market is going to crash, for sure, right? Ideally or hopefully. Um, you will have participants in the market at that time from entities such as asset managers, hedge funds, insurance companies that are willing to pick up this collateral or the hedges that you're selling in this time. At some right? price, perhaps, but yes. At some price, right. Uh, unfortunately, and I guess this is maybe to some extent the moral hazard that we've created post-2008, um, very often uh, it is the central banks that step in right, to stabilize the system again. Right. And we've seen that very recently with the turmoil, uh, you know, on the regional banking sector in the U.S. And we've also seen that during the COVID episode where maybe, you know, 
I mean, we had this V-shaped recovery following March 2020 or April 2020, and it was all over with because central banks stepped in with swap lines and liquidity, um, you know, liquidity um, facilities in order to calm markets down. But the question is, what type of system have we created, right, um, following that? Indeed. I mean, a, a, as a kind of off-the-cuff comment, I would have thought that some randomization in the system is healthy. So, for example, if instead of having the S&P 500 with its cap-weighted index and passive flows implicitly propping up the prices of the biggest names, perhaps, under certain price impact models, if you just had a random index, the weights would randomly be changed every so often. One could imagine that in the same way that an engineering system can be stabilized sometimes by the introduction of random noise, the financial system might be stabilized by the maybe not unpredictability necessarily, but just the um, lack of rigidity in the system. Does the banking system think at all about this sort of problem? I mean, I know that the Bank of England had certain research reports that they wrote about um, thinking of networks and stability of networks and contagion risk and so on and so forth. Is is this something that you're just too busy as someone who works at a, or who has worked at a major investment bank to consider, or is it something that is vital to understanding the future of how the network will evolve over time? Well, I believe we clearly think about trade flows for sure, right? And client flows, uh, because that's obviously what is, what is driving asset price dynamics quite often. In terms of I think discussing network effects in the domain of complex systems research, as you point out. Um, I think some of the more, you know, quant-focused colleagues uh, will do that, but I think it doesn't go beyond, let's say, armchair philosophy um, <laughs> over a coffee, over a coffee, then actually to be implemented, right? In in you know in our in our daily work. Do you think that the complex systems push in certain parts of finance is a healthy one? Is it overstated? A bit like machine learning can be in terms of, um, at least in the financial markets? Or is it something that is undoubtedly true and will find its way more and more into market practice? That's a good question. Um, I'm probably biased because as you can imagine, I you know I like thinking about these type of topics, right? And and to some extent, maybe we've also reached the limit of. Um, I mean, if you go back to physics, I think what you're comparing here, in a way, is kind of a mean field approach that we have typically in economics and finance, right? Where we average out, you know, in order to make things more tractable. Um, but clearly, I think we've reached the limit of how far we can go um, with this type of, let's say, non-agent-based models, if, if you want to put that into, into this term. So, especially in academia, I would say, but of course there are some industry prediction, predictions, practitioners as well who are you know, deeply involved in this research. Uh, if you think of um, Bushor, for example, right? Yeah, I think this is the way we need to push now, and I don't think honestly it matters too much as well whether, you know, within five years we come up with a with a perfect theory that can, you know, maybe help us stabilize markets in ways that, you know, we haven't done so before. 
But just the fact that we are looking into this realm and trying to move away from a pure mean field approximation is very valuable. But, but can I see something tangible right now? Um, my answer would be no. I see something much more tangible with respect to machine learning, right? Because that's what we use every day, right? Whether that's a regression or something, you know, more sophisticated. Um, but in terms of complex system research, tangible on the trading desk, I don't see that happen yet. I would agree. And I'm, uh, I'm sort of disappointed that what, you mentioned the second book that I wrote, or I was the lead author on. Um, people often ask me, where do you apply it? And I have some very specific cases, but it's not broadly applicable enough to really sort of be the foundation of an asset management strategy or a strategy within asset management or something like that. It's a, it's a purely episodic way of identifying um, excess concentration in markets. Whereas I think the leverage question perhaps is more all-pervasive, you know, the Jeff Snyder, Michael Howell world where maybe you can't say who's owning what, but you can say how much cash and credit is broadly available in the system. And if you make the leap, if you have the leap of faith or make the leap of faith that um, at the margins, these changes in credit flows have large impacts on major asset classes, maybe you can do something with that. Yeah, um, I typically look at it when I say all the time, I typically look at it when, uh, you know, my sort of traditional framework of looking at global macro is, you know, is, is not really playing out, you know, to my expectation, right, which is, which is right now as we speak, right? And I think in order to get an idea about especially, you know, maybe short-term or tactical directional flow, I think this is a, these tools are, are very good. But I'm still not at a stage where I would be willing to abandon, you know, sort of the traditional way of thinking about, um, you know, the interaction between central banks, the banking sector, and then ultimately the business cycle. Yeah, I mean, so let me give you one example in that direction. So if I look at the short end of the US yield curve, I might say that market expectations are that the Fed funds rate will be 2% lower than where it is today within 18 months. And I know the move index is high, and it has been very high recently, but it's lower than it was, significantly lower than it was a few months ago. I might scratch my head and say, well, look, um, how can the market be that confident that that aggressive a rate change, uh, that aggressive a an easing cycle will take place within the next 18 months? Is there an explanation one can give in terms of these more generalized liquidity measures is, or is it, is it just an anomaly that potentially could be exploited? I'm, I'm not sure whether the liquidity measures, I mean, the liquidity measures will actually right now tell you um, that, you know, the recession that we might be entering into in the US is, is clearly not going to be as severe as, you know, you might want to expect if you look at your traditional sort of ism measures with respect to economic activity right i mean what is happening in the rate space right now and i'm just you know throwing this into the picture is there are clearly also many market participants in market participants in this space right now who have not experienced this type of rate environment maybe ever right um so 
you know, that might be an explanation as to, you know, why why um, the volatility is, is as high, right? Because people can just not make sense of what that path is going to be, you know, going forward. That's that's one way. That's one way of looking at it. Um, and then, of course, right at the end of the day, uh, it's really I think much about the volatility of inflation uh, going forward and the level of inflation. Right. I mean, I was today. We're recording this on the twenty fourth of May. Um, I was about to say that you know inflation is you know obviously coming down a bit if you look at core inflation in the U.S., which is, which is great. Maybe also not you know too to unexpected given where we started but we just had a pretty big print again in the uk right and that obviously sent yields soaring again right so if we continue to be in this you know elevated inflation environment for much longer i think the rates volatility that we see is you know is going to persist right but at some point, if that's the case, then indeed the expectation of the market that we're going to get rate cuts between 1% or 2% over the course of the next 12 months cannot play out. Well, there, there, there are two points that come from that in, in my head. Um, the first one is that I was taught in the days when I did learn some quant finance that uh, the short rate drives the rest of the yield curve, A, and B, yields never go negative. Now, both of those seem to be violated. The, the second one was violated just numerically, factually, a few years ago. The second one, the, the, the first one that I raised, though, is more complex and more in line with these credit slash liquidity issues that one thinks about, because it seems to me that if the most liquid asset is the 10-year note, just to pick one, then that should be driving, in some sense, the rest of the yield curve because it's the thing that trades the most. It's the thing where people can express their views on the state of the world most directly and effectively with the least risk of not being able to unwind the position. So that seems like a perplexing uh, perplexing thing there. Do you, do, you, do you broadly agree with that? Or is it um, that actually it's not that the short end drives the long end, but the yield curve has its own different players and different reasons for moving at different points? No, for sure. I think the yield curve always had had has had different players, right, playing the respective term structure differently. Uh, that's for sure. Um, I mean, the distortion we see in the front end, right, given that we've raised rates at this you know rapid pace over the course of twelve months, right, uh, can certainly explain some of these dynamics that you see on the ten-year. I mean, many lives have been lost trying to predict where that ten-year rate is going to go similar to, you know, where the US dollar is going to go. Um, I don't think that has necessarily changed. But, you know, going forward, as you can probably extract more information from, from the respective slope and curve inversion than from, or curvature for that matter, um, instead of maybe looking at individual points, right? And clearly the market right now, to be honest with you, uh, is, is confused, right? It's not really quite clear where things are going to go. Uh, you, you mentioned the negative term premium which has been persistent. My knowledge was that the term premium was one of the few mean reverting, truly mean reverting quantities in the rates world, other than maybe volatility. But is do you see that reverting at any point in the near future? Or is this just a persistent, stubborn feature of modern collateralized markets? 
I think there I'm pretty much in Michael Howell's camp. I think the negative term premier that we currently see is clearly maybe not predominantly driven, but there's a large component uh, due to collateral shortages. So I completely agree with him there. And I don't really see that going away unless we you know, start issuing more bonds, right? Which it depends how the US deals with the debt ceiling now, um, right? <laughs> So we'll see which which points they will choose on the curve. I I guess it will be more in the let's say uh, short duration um, metric in order for the market to absorb that. But um, un- unless we have more collateral available, I don't see those negative term premia going anywhere. To be honest, fair enough. I've sort of reached a, a gap in the discussion. Was there anything you'd like to talk about or add before um, we wrap it up? No, I think it's fine. It's been a quite um we brought you know we covered a quite a lot of topics uh, to be honest um and i enjoyed that very much and uh, hopefully your listeners um, could extract some nuggets of wisdom here and there so have i i'm very impressed by the breadth as well as uh the the depth of your knowledge on these things and uh so it's been a real pleasure and with that i hand it back to niels Thank you so much, Harry and Mika, for a delightful conversation about some of the inner workings of the markets we trade and the banks that we interact with when doing so. There were quite a few takeaways that I thought were very interesting, in particular, to what extent markets can be modeled as complex adaptive systems, as well as to what extent regulation constrained banks' activity in the markets. And, of course, not least, what to make of the apparent distortions of the markets like the yield curve and the current disconnect between bond volatility and equity volatility. I also enjoyed learning about the LPPL model that is trying to predict market crashes, something that a lot of people seem to be focusing on, especially if you read the headlines on YouTube. Make sure you go and follow Mika's and Harry's work, because as you can tell from today's conversation, there are many exciting facets to learn from those who have been in the trenches for many years, and we really look forward to exploring many more of them as our series continue. From Harry and me, thanks so much for listening, and we look forward to being back with you with the next episode. And in the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.